Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 391st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by our good friends at Change Healthcare, offering audit services for coding, quality CDI, and charge capture compliance. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, that's Holly Louie, and good morning, Holly. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. We continue with our Series 5, Looking at 10, and our special guest today will be our good friend and a friend of so many others, and that's Stanley Nockupson. Stanley was very involved with WEDI. That's the work group for electronic data interchange. WEDI was an important player in the run-up to ICD-10, as we're going to learn from Stanley later in this broadcast. And speaking of five looking at 10, Deb Greider, author and educator, has returned to Talk 10 Tuesday. Today, Deb will be reporting on coding lessons learned in ICD-10. Lori Johnson continues her exclusive reporting on the coding of e-cigarette lung injuries, in other words, vaping as we know it to be. And Terry Fletcher has a report on a new policy from CMS effective November 4th, a policy we're calling guilt by association. Hmm. Uh, Layman Willis will report our lead story this morning, reasons not to believe DRG denials. And uh, you and I are going to talk about your article that we published this morning about literacy. Literacy as it relates to the social determinants of health and health care costs. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by Physician Revenue Solutions, providing medical practices with a full range of revenue cycle-related services. Here now is Tim Powell. Population health is a relatively new term to most people, even within the healthcare community. According to Kendig and Stoddard in their March 2003 article, What is Population Health? in the American Journal of Public Health, population health is defined as the health outcomes of a group of individuals, including the distribution of such outcomes within the group. According to Kingsley Akawe, one of the field's leading experts, the working definition of population health is expressed thus. Population health is an art, a process, a science, and a product of enhancing the health condition of a specific number of people within a given geographical area. HealthyPeople.gov is a governmental website devoted to providing data to help researchers, providers, and the public get population health data to improve the lives of all Americans. Healthy People provides science-based 10-year national objectives for improving the health of all Americans. For three decades, Healthy People has established benchmarks and monitored progress over time in order to encourage collaborations across communities and sectors, empower individuals towards making informed health decisions, and measure the impact of prevention activities. HealthyPeople.gov's current 10-year initiative is called Healthy People 2020. Healthy People 2020 strives to identify nationwide health improvement priorities, increase public awareness and the understanding of the determinants of health, disease, and disability, and the opportunities for progress, provide measurable objectives and goals that are applicable to the national, state, and local levels, engage multiple sectors to take actions to strengthen policies and improve practices that are driven by the best available evidence and knowledge, and to identify critical research, evaluation, and data collection needs. 
HealthyPeople.gov allows all users to select data from 40 different topic areas and then select data from hundreds of different databases. As a sample, I pulled data on new cases of diabetes in the United States from the CDC for people 18 to 84 years old, and that will be published along with my article that comes out uh, later on the same subject. If you work in the healthcare field, or you simply have an interest uh, in healthcare to studying healthy people and health, uh, and health data, I hope you get a chance to look at this wonderful site. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was compliance expert and ICD-10 monitor NASA correspondent, Tim Powell. This is Tuesday. It's October the 29th, 2019, and you're listening to the 391st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, coming to you from the 11th Annual NamUs Auditing and Compliance Conference here in Clearwater, Florida. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Staying on top of pressing coding and documentation issues can be challenging, especially when new ICD-10 codes are released. No wonder you struggle to keep up to date. And there's the need for recertification, along with the stress of obtaining continuing education credits. Now, with a subscription from ICD-10 Monitor, you have premium content plus continuing education credits from AHIMA and AAPC. Subscribe to the new ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast series. Premium content, accessible for in-house and remote staff, anywhere, anytime. And now, for a low annual rate, you can subscribe to more than 40 curated educational webcasts. Plus, for a limited time, get access to a free three-day trial of the new ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast subscription. To activate your free three-day trial, go to the ICD-10 Monitor bookstore. Now is the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Holly, and hello to our listeners. Today I have another update to the vaping story. According to information that was released by the Center for Disease Control on October 22nd, there were 1,604 e-cigarette vaping-associated lung injuries reported with 34 deaths across 49 states, the District of Columbia, and now including the U.S. Virgin Islands. Alaska is the only state that has not reported any cases. The number of Valley cases continues to grow. The use of THC products with three months um, have been reported by 86% of Valley patients. The median age of patients who survived is 23 years of age, while the median age of patients who are deceased is 45 years old. With the high rate of Evali associated with patients using THC, the CDC has asked the public to not use THC products while vaping. Complete information has not been collected on Evali patients, but based on the information that is available, the additional statistics regarding these patients include that 70% of the reported cases were male, there are no reported cases that, in, that the patient was pregnant. 79% of the cases are less than 35 years of age. 78% were white, non-Hispanic. 63% of the deaths used THC exclusively. The co- conclusion of the report is that vaping can be a problem for younger people, although vaping may be deadly for older patients. THC products that are obtained informally, 
such as from the street or from family or friends, are playing an important role in the reported cases. The CDC states that communication regarding the dangers for younger users and older users must happen. According to Wall Street Journal, vaping products that include inhalable vitamins and essential oils have not caught the attention of the CDC yet. These products are purchased online. A study from the University of Southern California states that flavored e-cigarettes are getting younger people hooked on vaping. Some users become heavy users. It should be noted that state and federal agencies have limited or banned flavored nicotine products. These steps have been taken to reduce teen interest in these products. Amazon does not sell vaping products and has expanded the policy to prohibit non-nicotine, non-tobacco vaporizers. Walmart is also reviewing its policy regarding the selling of vaping products. Remember, according to the guidance released on 10-17-19, the coding professional should assign um, for the codes that the coding professional should assign for the evaluation patients is the code for the lung injury and the injury for nicotine or THC, if that's documented, and any substance use, abuse, or dependence. Above all, the CDC says that if you're not using any tobacco products, now is not the time to begin. Back to you, Holly. Thank you so much, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. We continue our series, Five Looking at Ten. Five Looking at Ten is sponsored by Change Healthcare, offering audit services for coding, quality, CDI, and charge capture compliance. Joining me now for coding lessons learned from ICD-10 is author, consultant, and educator, Deb Greider. Good morning, Deb. Good morning. It's been several years now since ICD-10 became a reality, and we have come a long way since ICD-10 was implemented. Clinical documentation improvement, which was in its infancy with ICD-10 implementation, is now commonplace in the inpatient setting and now moving quickly into the outpatient and physician office settings. Our CDI professionals are reviewing more documentation than in the past, looking for clinical indicators to support the conditions reported by clinicians and in turn reporting a diagnosis code. And these measures do help ensure accurate reimbursement for both the hospital and the office setting and in any uh, clinical setting. Coding compliance and continued education and training for coders and clinicians has been critical in the continued success for documentation improvement and in turn accurate procedure and diagnosis coding. But what have we learned in ICD-10 moving forward? We still have a long way to go. The biggest issue I see when I audit medical records is making sure that medical necessity is realized. And medical necessity plays an important role in validating a diagnosis in the medical record in any setting. Payers are now now beginning to deny claims for unspecified diagnoses and or requesting medical records to validate the conditions managed uh, the treatment in typically a prepayment review. And what they're finding, uh, Medicare did a study in 2018 that there were about 21% of claims that were denied for medical necessity. So when we're looking at medical necessity, what, what are we looking for? We're looking for any inpatient admission criteria, invasive procedure criteria, 
uh, coverage guidelines, published clinical criteria, reviewing medical policies, the DRG validation in the inpatient setting, and of course the coding guidelines. And what the biggest challenge we still face is missing information in the documentation to validate the specificity. I can give you one real example that I reviewed recently where in a medical record, the physician um, actually did not document a plan of care for most of the conditions he was managing. And that's a no-no. You have to have an assessment and plan of care and the status of the condition. So clinical documentation, we're still missing things like condition present on admission, acuity, whether it's acute chronic or acute on chronic, the type of condition, whether, for example, with heart uh, an MI is a systolic, is a diastolic. Laterality, if it exists in the code. Inconsistency in the clinician's notes. Missing clinical evidence. So there's no evidence of monitoring the evaluation and the assessment that's addressed and treated in the plan of care. And documenting the status of the patient's condition. And then any treatments necessary. So we're still seeing a lot of uh, medical necessity issues. We're still seeing a lot of unspecificity. Um, we're seeing things like unspecified kidney failure, uh, pain in an unspecified um, limb or a hand or um, a, a disorder of bone density and structure unspecified. Heart disease is a big one. Diabetes, we really need to know what type and any, any comorbidities. Um, things like cardiomyopathy, atrial flutter, atrial fib, sepsis, strokes. So we need to start getting more specific in our documentation so the coders can code more specific information. So here's an example that I saw recently where you have an emergency department provider documents the non-place right talus fracture, and then the ankle x-ray comes back and it's a non-displaced avulsion fracture of the right talus. Well, the unspecified code was reported, the S92.101A for the initial encounter, and then during a final review when the coder reviewed it prior to submitting the claim, based on the x-ray report, we were able to code to more specificity, and that's really important. Uh, based on the imaging report, we coded S92.154A, so that's really important. So the bottom line is, even though we have smooth transition to ICD-10, we still have a long way to go in reporting specificity. Ensuring documentation supports condition reported and ongoing education in ICD-10 coding and reporting continues. Holly? Thank you so much, Deb. That was author, educator, Deb Greider. Deb is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Karen Zupko & Associates. Here now with the Tuesday Focus is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. There was an important change for enrollment applications under Medicare starting this fall. CMS changed November 4, 2019, Medicare and Medicaid enrollment attestation requirements. Recently passed the final rule, your Medicare enrollments will be judged not necessarily on your performance, but based on your affiliations with other providers and suppliers. Yes, you heard that right, other providers and suppliers. CMS 84, Federal Register 47794, will establish or determine if you have a provider or supplier affiliation that has committed bad acts. Based on this, you could be considered to be an increased uh, fraud, waste, or abuse risk. If this happens, CMS is authorized to deny or revoke your Medicare and Medicaid billing privileges. What are you going to do to protect your practice from harm? What actions must you take to prepare yourself for the full implementation of this rule? And how can you head off Medicare and or Medicaid revocation? 
all this is, all of this rule goes into effect on November 4th, you will have little wiggle room based on CMS targeted phase in uh, approach. It's essential that you use this time thoroughly to understand how to avoid getting blindsided because of an affiliate's wrongdoing. You must know how to protect your practice from losing its ability to bill for your services to Medicare and Medicaid. First, it's time to do your due diligence. Determine which of your relationships constitute an affiliation under the final rule. Pin down exactly what constitutes a disclosable event. Don't let a provider's degree of competence your enrollment application denied, meaning that you may be referring to another entity or a part of a joint ownership of an ASC or diagnostic testing facility, lab, or even a long-term care nursing facility. You need to know their history with CMS as well. Set up a screening process for future affiliates to head off billing problems when you hire physicians or approach to start referring to an outside entity. If you hire a physician or provider that lost their licensure out of state, find out why and how that may affect your practice if you hire them. Do not let CMS revoke your Medicare billing privileges because, again, guilt by association. CMS proposed to define affiliation as meeting a 5% or greater direct or indirect ownership, interest that an individual or entity has in another organization, a general or limited partnership interest, regardless of percentage, that an individual or entity has in another organization, an interest in which an individual or entity exercises operational or managerial control over or directly or indirectly conducts a day-to-day operations of another organization, and there's more. What are the bad acts under fire by CMS? And under, new, new position, uh, under the new provisions, what authority does CMS have? Well, again, they can deny or revoke your supplier's uh, enrollment application if CMS determines that the provider or supplier is currently revoked under a different name. They can also revoke or uh, your supplier enrollment, enrollment uh, including if, if the provider or supplier's practice locations, regardless of whether or not they're part of the same enrollment, if you knew at the time that there were some issues with that enrollment. And there's also increased consequences for noncompliance with CMS new rule. It means that you could use your ability to see Medicare and Medicaid patients for up to 20 years. It is really up to your practice to make sure you understand your affiliate partnerships, that they're above board, and that you can't have your credentialing privileges revoked due to guilt by association. You can find the complete Federal Register final rule link in my ICD-10monitor.com published article today. And please do not sit on this. Be proactive and make sure you're protected. Back to you, Holly. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Terry is a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board. Our lead story this morning is about why there are good reasons not to believe DRG denials. Here now with reasons why is Layman Willis. Good morning, Layman. Thank you, Chuck. One of the main reasons that I find in our organization that we don't believe the denials is the improper use of coding guidelines when we receive the denials. There are many times when an insurance entity will uh, deny a claim and provide a reference to some coding criteria, some coding guidelines. Uh, They may be the official coding guidelines, uh, such as referencing the uh, ICD-10 official coding guidelines in a particular section. Uh, they may also reference sometimes coding clinics um, and similar uh, items like that if it happens to be possibly an outpatient claim. Uh, but one of the things that we find is that 
these entities are using those examples improperly. Uh, one of the examples that I provided in uh, my article to uh, ICD-10 Monitor has to do with a denial of plural effusion, uh, J90. Uh, this was documented by the provider, and so the insurance entity denied the, the claim uh, based upon uh, a review of the medical records. They state that the patient only had moderate uh, effusion. Uh, and that it was not addressed during the admission. They stated there wasn't any workup, there was no therapeutic management, um, and they go on and they uh, begin to, um, you know, reference some things to do with the guidelines. However, upon review of the information, we noticed uh, multiple things that they failed uh, to consider. And so, for example, uh, I did have documentation of chest x-rays by radiologists confirming the pleural effusion. We also had CT scans uh, documenting pericardial pleural effusion. We had progress notes on multiple days by uh, physicians and other entities uh, providing information about the pleural effusion. Uh, we also had uh, discharge summary with that information. Uh, and so because of that, we realized that they're not looking at all the criteria that they say they are. Uh, even though they might have requested the medical records, they receive them, uh, they take a look at them, they have not done a good job in thoroughly evaluating the records themselves. And so um, we feel like a lot of times those denials simply are uh, by rote or even by algorithm in which they've simply decided to first pass and deny the claim. We've had similar uh, circumstances with RAC denials as well, in which the RAC will go into detail about why they're denying various things, and they'll often quote uh, coding guidelines as well. And again, we find over and over again that they miss information uh, within the medical record, they miss information that has been sent to them, and uh, they also do not consider that we have to follow exactly what the provider is giving us. And so from those standpoints, again and again, we see uh, that there's multiple reasons not to believe the denial uh, from these entities. Um, and, and, a, and a follow up to that, I would just say, um, you know, be sure that you have qualified good staff that are working with your organization to oversee any type of denials, whether they're inpatient or outpatient, uh, going forward. Holly? Thank you so much. That was Lehman Willis. Lehman is the Director of Coding for Velocity Healthcare Collaborative. Chuck? Thanks, Holly and Lehman. Thank you very, very much. Stanley Nogerson has been the voice for ICD-10 adoption during the run-up to ICD-10. He's been a regular panelist on this broadcast for the last several years with his popular RegWatch segment. Today, our friend and the friend of so many others joins me. That's Stanley Nogerson. So, Stanley, tell us a little bit about Weedy and about your involvement with Weedy in the run-up to ICD-10. Weedy recognized that ICD-10 was a major project for the entire industry and that the industry really needed some guidance as to exactly what to do, when to do it, and all the steps that were necessary to take. So what we did is developed a broad industry-wide project plan using some software, and we actually published it. And what that plan showed were the necessary steps uh, that entities needed to take, whether you were a vendor, a clearinghouse, a health plan, or a, a health care provider the dates by which those steps needed to be started and, and ended, 
and the dependencies uh, among the different steps and the different actors within the industry. Uh, we told folks when they needed to start their analysis uh, of the the rules and uh, uh, what ICD-10 was all about, when they needed to do their training, when development needed to be done, um, when the implementation within the organization had to be started and stopped, and when the testing had to be started and stopped so that everyone would be ready uh, by the regulatory date. Of course, that date kept moving, so we adjusted the work plan for that, but it was an industry-wide work plan that anyone in the industry could uh, download and follow and at least make sure that they were able to meet the uh, required regulatory implementation date. And it also talked about the necessary testing steps. Uh, one of the other places that I uh, participated in with Weedy was as the chair of their <laughs> testing work group. And there we recognized the need for significant end-to-end -end testing, as some of your other guests have mentioned, uh, that folks had to work together from the provider through the clearinghouse, through the health plan, um, and back the other way to assure that everyone's ICD-10 processes were correct. We needed to make sure that claims and other transactions were going to be processed correctly come the implementation date so that providers would continue to be paid appropriately. And that end-to-end -end testing was really a, a key in making sure that everything worked correctly. Uh, Stanley, what lessons can we learn from ICD-10 as the country prepares for ICD-11? I think for any industry-wide implementation, what we recognized uh, uh, are, one, that vendors are really a key part of the industry and their work needed to be done first before their products could be implemented at the plans and the providers. So the vendors had to start, get their products ready, um, do their necessary testing, and then turn it over to the industry where plans, providers, and others could then start that implementation and testing. So it's a multi-step process that with the vendors leading the way. The second item that I think we really understood was the interdependencies among vendors, plans, and providers, that everybody had to work together. They had to be aware of the steps that each other was taking. They had to communicate with each other and especially match up in terms of testing uh, so that providers, when providers were ready, they had to find a plan to test with. And when plans were ready, they had to find providers to test with. When vendors were ready, they had to make sure that their customers were ready to, to do their implementation. It was really fascinating to see how the industry really needed to work together uh, in order to accomplish this, this major effort. And, and I think we've seen that in some of the follow-ups when we talk about implementing electronic health records or any other major changes uh, in the healthcare industry. Very good. Thank you, Stanley, very much for being with us today. This morning, we published a must-read article about literacy, literacy as it relates to social determinants of health. The article is by Holly Louis. So, Holly, uh, in a couple of minutes remaining, why this topic? Well, Chuck, this topic because as we look at the social determinants, I've been seeing more and more statistics that I think hide the literacy issue in noncompliance, in um, poverty, in um, loss to follow-up, and many others. And so I did a little homework on this, 
And I think we should start with how the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act actually defines health literacy. It's the degree to which an individual has the capacity to obtain, communicate, process, and understand basic health information and services to make appropriate decisions. Well, before I move ahead, let me just say that that is above the reading level of a substantial number of American citizens. So if we look at the impact of literacy, although the statistics can vary a bit by who publishes them, 75% of our state prison inmates are unable to read, write, or do mathematics above a third grade level. 19% of America's high school graduates can't read. 21% of adults read at a lower than a fifth grade level. And many, many patients, many people hide that very well. It's an embarrassment to them. They don't want people to know, and they have learned to pass through our society um, giving people the perception that they are literate at a higher level and that they do understand what is being told to them, shared with them. When I look at also some of the physician comments and some of the surveys, many physicians have said it's about a 50-50 chance that a patient will do what they were told in their aftercare follow-up instructions. And other physicians have opined that if you queried the patient just 30 minutes after they are um, discharged from the office or the clinic or whatever, that they cannot restate what was told to them, what their diagnosis is, what they need to do about their diagnosis, and how to manage it and follow up. So there's a massive disconnect in what patients are given to continue their care appropriately and what their understanding is of that. We do know that most facilities, anyway, can give patients literacy-appropriate literature. The problem is I'm not sure that too many providers give the patient a reading test before they treat them. And so the patient's comprehension is not what the physician anticipates that it is, and so they don't know really what they're supposed to do. If we look at currently the average grade reading level in the United States is 8th grade, although, as I said, 21% read at lower than 5th grade. I think we have to address this before we can tackle some of the other social determinants. And when we look at the cost, direct cost of this is estimated at $230 billion a year impact on healthcare costs directly attributable to the ability to read, write, and understand. So that's what intrigued me, Chuck. I think that literacy is a factor in all the other social determinants that we're reporting. The the poverty, the lack of funds, the lack of resources, the lack of a stable job. And I think we need to focus on that rather than letting it hide under other um, determinants that disguise the fact that this whole problem is due to ability to read and write. Thanks, Holly. That's excellent reporting. Thanks very much. That's going to be your wrap for our 391st edition of Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, Deb Greider, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Doxon, Layman Willis, and, of course, our guest host, Holly Louie. Join us again next Tuesday. That's where we're going to begin a new series here called 10 Looking at 11. Robert Jacob from the WHO organization is going to be with us. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting live from the NamUs Convention here in Clearwater, Florida. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a good day, everybody.
Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.